Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, sponsored by EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, and also sponsored by Natural Awakenings Magazine. Live your healthiest life on a healthier planet. Now here's your host, Bernice Butler. Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. We are now in our fifth season, and we remain just as excited as ever to continue to help you explore and understand that unbreakable relationship between your health and the health of the planet. Here we look at the hottest topics related to our environment and its sustainability and how they affect your health and wellness. Here, issues like climate change, plastic pollution, extreme weather events, and others will meet up with everyday impacts like allergies and asthma, digestive issues and gut health, cancers, lung, heart issues, and more. So listen in today as we interview experts for today's show in this month's series on energy production and consumption. And today we're focusing in on energy-efficient homes and personal health looking at the health effects of our fossil fuels dependency and navigating that interconnected world of energy, production, consumption, and again, personal health. Now, in the intricate dance of modern living, energy is a silent partner that powers our daily routines, all the way from the moment we wake up in the morning to the instant we close our eyes at night. The sources of this energy and the manner in which we consume it have far, far reaching implications, not only for the environment, but also for our personal well being. And so today, as we delve into this labyrinth of energy production and consumption, we find ourselves at a crossroads, really, where conscious choices can lead to healthier lives and a more sustainable future. Now, energy efficient homes stand as beacons, really, of hope in this journey, showcasing a harmonious marriage between comfort and environmental responsibility. The spaces that we inhabit play a crucial role in shaping our lives, and of course, energy-efficient homes offer a tangible solution to mitigate the adverse impacts of our everyday energy choices. And our homes leverage or can leverage advanced technologies, insulation techniques, and renewable energy sources in order to minimize energy waste and decrease our carbon footprint. And the benefits extend really beyond mere energy savings, and they directly impact the health and vitality of those who dwell within, and that would be us. Our dependence on fossil fuels which is the lifeblood of conventional energy production, has woven a complex tapestry that extends far beyond the confines of power plants and fuel stations. The combustion of fossil fuels releases pollutants into the air, giving rise to a cocktail, really, of harmful substances that infiltrate both our homes and our bodies. And the health effects of this dependency are profound affecting respiratory and cardiovascular systems, exacerbating asthma, and increasing the risk of heart attacks. The air we breathe becomes a battleground, actually, where microscopic particles that are derived from the fossil fuel combustion launch a silent attack, a silent assault on our well-being. 
And in addition to its sometimes catastrophic health effects related directly to burning the fossil fuels, such as air pollution, they also contribute significantly to resource depletion through the extraction processes like deep water drilling or mountaintop removal that's used for coal mining. And such resource depletion leads both to environmental imbalances when particular resources become overexploited, but also leads to public health risk due to contamination via the depleted groundwater reserves or even the nearby water sources when particular chemicals may leach out during the extraction process. Consider for a moment the interconnectedness of our daily lives with the energy we consume. For example, the flick of a switch the warmth of our heaters, or the hum of our AC units are all tied to a system that relies heavily on fossil fuels. And in our pursuit of comfort, we inadvertently contribute to a cycle that not only damages the environment, but also erodes the very essence of our health. And so recognizing this connection is really the first step toward fostering a deeper understanding of the importance of sustainable energy choices in our day-to-day lives. And the urgency of addressing our fossil fuel dependency becomes even more apparent when we reflect on the long-term consequences, like rising global temperatures, extreme weather events, and the depletion of our natural resources, which are not coming back, are not abstract concepts, but they're very tangible threats that we can feel and see to our collective well-being. And so by embracing energy-efficient practices and renewable sources, we not only safeguard the planet for future generations, but also we're safeguarding our own health and well-being, as well as that of the planet. So as we navigate this interconnected web of energy, environment, and health, it becomes evident that our choices resonate far, far beyond the flick of that switch or the turn of a key. So embracing energy-efficient practices and transitioning to renewable sources is not just about preserving the planet. It's also about safeguarding our own health and wellness. And in making informed choices, then we can illuminate a path toward a healthier, more sustainable future for both ourselves and our future generations. Now, this is a lot, but... Here today to help us explore and unpack some of this are two experts who are going to make us smarter. With us today, we have Maria Chavez. Maria is an energy analyst for the Union of Concerned Scientists in their climate and energy program. She focuses on the capabilities of renewable energy technologies and the importance of equitable and justice-centered policies. Now, before joining the Union of Concerned Scientists, which are big friends to this program, Maria worked as a market research analyst, writing in-depth reports on clean energy technologies and forecasting market growth in this sector. And she spent time conducting fieldworks in places like the Peruvian Amazon, the Point Reyes National Seashore in California, and the White Mountains region of New Hampshire. Welcome, Maria. Did I get all of that right? Hi, Bernice. Thank you for having me. Yes, that is all correct. And thank you so much for making time for joining us today, too. Our other guest is David Turcott. David is Research Professor Emeritus and Director of the Lowell Healthy Homes Program and the New England Healthy Homes Training Center. And he's a member of the Steering Committee of the Climate Change Initiative at the University of Massachusetts at Lowell. David has served as Principal Investigator 
on the U.S. Housing and Urban Development Funded Environmental Intervention Research Grants, and he also serves as principal investigator for the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences funded New England Consortium, among many, many other things. Welcome, David, and did I get all of that right? Yes. Everything's fine. Thank you, Bernice. Again, thank you as well, David, for making time to to join us today. We really appreciate you. And we're really going to pick your brain so we can get to have some of that expert smartness like you all. I want to start, though, with you, David. Can you tell us about, I guess, the percentage or proportion of energy in our society and in the U.S. that is applicable to our living situations, to our home? You know, I know we spend energy in transportation, uh, industrial uses, and what have you. But is there a, right, right. an estimate on what's expended in our homes? Yeah, I would say it's, you know, 20, 21% of all energy consumption relates to the residential sector in the United States. And there's a variety of fuels used, as you know, but natural gas is the most uh, common for heating. It's in the high 60%. And it's, you know, but that has decreased a little bit over time since the 70s. What's, what's been taking its place as that natural gas has consumption has decreased? What, what's been balancing it well, off? It, you may know there's been a lot of uh, emphasis on uh, heat pumps, which are generally electric, and encouraging people to replace them. There's tax credits now you can get for that. So that's been a factor. Also, you know, population change, energy efficiency, you know, improvements in the home. So you're, you know, don't have to use as much uh, natural gas or other sources to heat the home once the homes have been uh, tightened and have increases in um, insulation. Indeed. Thank you for that. And we just have about a minute or so to go, but I want to move to Maria now. Of the top health care concerns in our world and in our country today, Maria, how much is attributable to our fossil fuel dependencies? Are there any estimates or guesstimates on that? Yeah, well, we're really reliant on fossil fuels. The vast majority of our production and consumption in this country comes from fossil fuels. And actually, a Union of Concerned Scientists study looked at the performance of gas power in uh, times of extreme weather, and it found that gas is disproportionately failing people during those most critical times. And it's leaving us really vulnerable and at risk, especially people who are already at risk um, at times like this during extreme weather. Um, so we can attribute a lot of our risk and our health concerns to some of our over-reliance on fossil fuels like methane gas. Now, you made the statement, you said it's it's disproportionately failing people, I believe. Yes. Can you explain that a little bit more? How so? Well, Bernice, uh, low-income communities and people of color are at higher risk of the harms faced by the damages posed by fossil fuels. And I mean this because they are more uh, close in proximity physically to uh, things like fossil fuel plants. Um, They also have the least amount of access and resources to uh, address their health or make changes for healthier living options their homes. Now, I want to I dig into that uh, a, a lot more, but we'll go ahead and go to break now, and we'll come back to you on the other side, Maria. Thank you. 
We want to give a shout out now to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex Magazine, The Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all HEB stores, natural grocers, all central markets, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available free for download online at nadallas.com. Check them out. Our other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care, practicing dentistry for over 40 years with a holistic approach, looking at the whole body. Specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lynndentalcare.com. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio to today's show in our series this month on energy production and consumption. And today we're looking into navigating the interconnected world of energy production, consumption, and our personal health. And we are back with Maria Chavez with the Union of Concerned Scientists and with David Turcott with Lowell Healthy Homes Program and the New England Healthy Homes Training Center, as well as the University of Massachusetts at Lowell. And again, we really appreciate you all being with us and you're making us smarter already. So I want to go back to Maria, who we were talking to before the break. And we were talking about uh, health care concerns in the amount or how many of them are attributable to fossil fuel dependency. And you mentioned that uh, low income and minority populations are disproportionately affected. And one of the things I've found in this four and a half years that we've been doing this show is that it seems to be important that we unpack and discuss why those of us who may not perceive ourselves to be part of those vulnerable populations, why it is we must care that these populations are overburdened. In other words, because we're all so interconnected. And I think all of us got to see a real big snapshot of that during COVID. So if you can explain, you, you mentioned before the break that these vulnerable populations, I guess they get a higher dose <laughs> or a purer dose of the pollution and all the bad stuff that comes from fossil fuel because they may be closer to the plants? Yes. So a lot of low-income communities and communities of color are disproportionately closer to these points of pollution. So think about those kind of dirty fossil fuel plants that you uh, see in your cities. There are more communities that are disadvantaged or have fewer resources that are located around there. So they are closer in proximity to those harms as well. Um, but like you said, it affects all of us. So it's not an issue that sort of stops at that zip code line. Uh, this extends to everyone and carbon emissions, pollution is, is a global problem. It's a global issue. It's not just a local one or one that affects one community over another. Um, this is going to permeate into all of our lives and is affecting all of our health. At any point, any of us could become someone who is vulnerable and in need of more resources to address these issues. Indeed, indeed. And I think this is a, a conversation that needs to be had more 
more often because many times, like with COVID, initially with COVID, it was affecting older people. So the, the younger people went out and did whatever. We see what happened. Same thing with essential workers. And we are still uh, uh, feeling the impact of essential workers being hard hit. And I think many times when many of us hear that those who live across the street or around the corner or what have you from the fossil fuel plants are the ones who are most affected, then we don't, we say, oh, that doesn't concern me, so I don't deal with it. But one of the examples that is used over and over again on this show, usually by guests and myself, is an example that many people are aware of, and that's that in the summer, when, especially here in North Texas, we get it. We get a visitation every summer of the Saharan red dust. Well, that stuff is coming all the way from Africa, which takes about eight to ten hours or more to fly to. And so, if it can get from that far over here to North Texas and any place else it wants to get in the U.S., then so can the pollutants and the health impact particles. Uh, from the fossil fuel plant that's across the street from the low-income uh, communities. And so I think that's very, very important uh, so that people realize it affects all of us. So I want to go now back to a minute for with David. Can you talk to us, David, about looking at more uh, of the health impacts, the impacts on our health, and what are the trends and how might we mitigate them? Like looking at the, the health impacts of fossil fuels, on individuals as it relates to their home health, say 20 years ago, as compared to now, what are we looking at? What are the trends? Well, unfortunately, there's a lot of trends that uh, um, geared towards promoting health, but having negative impacts on health. So for, number one, temperatures. Temperatures have increased in the last 20 years. And extreme heat you know, in the United States kills anywhere from 600 to 1,300 people a year. And according to the Center for Disease Control, you know, excessive heat increases the risk of death and heat strokes and is linked to increased hospital admissions for heart, kidney, and respiratory disorders. And those who have work outside, whether it's in your garden at home or whether it's as a profession, or pregnant women, older adults, children, they have increased health risk because of increases in temperature. And then it was mentioned earlier, you know, Air quality issues have gotten worse. Extreme heat increases ozone levels, and we've had more wildfires, you know, happening that we've seen. That increases particulate pollution, which worsens respiratory conditions, particularly people who have asthma or other respiratory conditions. The other thing related to this is the allergenic pollution seasons are longer now because of changes in climate and daily pollen counts have increased about 50% in the last decade. So, you know, burning fossil fuels have contributed to all of this and worsening of um, air quality. And it was mentioned earlier by Maria, you know, being close to a, a source, proximity source, you know, raises the risk. But also within your own home, those who cook with gas stoves, you're breathing, you know, uh, particulates, you're breathing carbon monoxide, nitrogen dioxide, nitrogen oxide. Yeah, I like to I like to highlight the fact uh, because we here in North Texas uh, uh, love our fireplaces, and I imagine you all do too up north. Uh, but yes. as many uh, guests and experts on the show have uh, told me and our listeners, if it combusts, it pollutes. Absolutely. If it combusts, any, anything that burns and has some flames to it, <laughs> if it combusts, 
it pollutes. Very true. <laughs> Very true. Right. But if you're low income, you know, getting back to what Maria was emphasizing, and you, you know, you have a gas stove, you may not have a choice. You may have to continue to use that gas stove because you don't own, you know, the property. And so a lot of my work and with uh, older adults living in public housing that are cooking with gas stoves because, you know, that's what's there. These are older public housing projects. They don't have the infrastructure or the resources to convert the whole buildings, all the buildings to, you know, electric heat, uh, electric um, range or electric stoves because, you know, there's a cost factor and involved in that. Indeed. But I've also seen, though, that there seem to be just as many other people uh, using gas. And and a lot of that is because of lack of knowledge of what it's doing. And again, they've heard this with low income people, but they said, oh, that's not me. And I think that's a big communication issue that needs to be had, too, is that people will just not pay attention to it. And they think that does not apply to me. Because many of us, we've got so much on our plates and, and so much on our tables. And, and so if there's anything we can push away or we don't have to listen to right. or deal with, we're all very anxious to do that. And, and, and so I think that needs to, to be highly communicated, uh, that it's any, anything that combusts uh, is polluting. Uh, yes, there yeah. are some in society that once they do know, they may not have a choice and cannot get away from that. But it, it, from what I've seen in stats, you've got just as many, if not more, who, who don't realize yet what it's doing, what it's doing to their health. I was just going to make one other point. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been research coming out you know, within the last year. There was a lot of controversy about whether the government was going to regulate gas stoves. And basically, you know, the research is showing that children growing up in homes and being exposed to gas stoves, you know, there's an association between the development of asthma and the exposure of gas stoves in children. And, and again, that's why I keep asking trends, because at one point, almost all the stoves in use in this country were gas. And, and speaking of which, do either of you have any statistics or estimates or guesstimates on that about in, in terms of home heating or cooking, too, probably more so cooking? What percentage of, of gas stoves are in use? And where is that? Is Are we seeing market declines or significant declines in, in that or not? Yeah. From what I recall, I, it was in the 40s. Okay. And that depends also on the region. Some regions have higher gas stove uses than others. But I think there's been decline. Um, I know that, um, you know, in the Northeast, a lot of the newer, like, affordable housing projects, people are sensitive to the fact mm-hmm. that, you know, a lot of low-income families and children have high, have asthma, so they've been rehabbing, you know, older structures or building newer structures mm-hmm. and putting in electric stoves as opposed to gas stoves. Indeed. We're going to go ahead and go to break now, and we'll be right back on the other side with Maria Chavez with the Union of Concerned Scientists and David Turcott with the Lowell Healthy Homes Program and the Climate Change Initiative at the University of Massachusetts in Lowell. And they are making us smarter. Thank you. We'll be right back on the other side. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. 
to our show today in our series on energy production and consumption. And today we are looking at navigation of the interconnected world of energy production, consumption, and our personal health. And we have with us two experts who really are making us smarter. We have Maria Chavez with the Union of Concerned Scientists and David Turcott with Lowell Healthy Homes Program and the New England Healthy Homes Training Center. Again, thank you all for joining us. I, I want to go uh, back to David and talk a little bit about what you see as perhaps the most underappreciated or underrecognized impact of our fossil fuel dependency. Um, yeah, I mean, there's um, some areas that I think don't get as much focus. Um, you know, we know about, you know, extreme weather and wildfires have gotten a lot of news, but for example, you know, drought, which is the outcome of climate change, you know, that, um, you know, can disrupt food production, obviously. But the other thing that happens as increases in CO2 levels continue, it decreases the level of essential minerals in the crops that are being grown, you know, and produced. So it and it's impacting the, the quality of our food significantly. Right, the quality of our food. Mm-hmm. And also the dry soil, you know, increases particulate matter, as we've been talking about, in the air, which is not healthy, particularly for folks with respiratory issues. But also, you know, it increases the concentration of toxic chemicals in bodies of water. So there was a lot of concern about Salt Lake and uh, some other lakes out west that, they, you know, that their levels were going down and the concentration of toxins were higher you know, because they weren't being diluted as much. So that you know, that's some doesn't get as much attention. Also, vector-borne disease and and waterborne diseases. So, you know, ticks, mosquitoes, you know, there's been in, increases in reproductive rates because of changes in climate. And, you know, we've had diseases like Zika that really never came into the United States now coming into the United States from mosquitoes because of changes in climate change. And, you know, you can get serious disease as a result of, you know, being bitten by a tick or um, or a mosquito, by a mosquito. And related to that, you know, severe storms lead to flood and runoff that gets into the homes, which really increases the number of toxins in the homes and pathogens that get into the homes. And people just think, well, yeah, we dry it out and everything will go back to normal. But, you, you know, you probably have toxic substances that have entered your home you know, from the water runoff as well as pathogens that you know, could have negative health impacts. Indeed, indeed. Thank you for, for helping us to understand that. I want to move to Maria for a moment here, too, and, and talk about what you're seeing as the most promising renewable energy technologies to help us get away from fossil fuels the fastest. Yeah, uh, well, Solar and wind power are already being deployed to generate a lot of clean energy. Um, But some of the other resources, uh, apart from wind and solar, like energy storage and being able to invest in our transmission system can also help us use that renewable energy more efficiently and be able to integrate it into our grid and use it as needed. Um, And then generally just use it more efficiently as well, so that we're not wasting energy, we're not generating energy that we don't need. Maria, though, what do you see as the challenges and perhaps 
underappreciated or, again, underrecognized opportunities in terms of moving away from fossil fuels? Quickly. Yeah, well, you just said it. It's <laughs> that over-reliance, again, on fossil fuels that is making it tough for us to, to transition into mm-hmm. a cleaner energy economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have the tools and resources to deploy renewable energy sources. Um, they're also cost-effective and they're reliable. Um, but we're just really stuck in our fossil fuels right now. So we need to find a way either through uh, just more information, more understanding, better policy, um, better education to be able to move away from those and uh, and really let these other technologies kind of move us into a, a healthier, mm-hmm. uh, cleaner transition. And as far as opportunities, I mean, there are so many. We already know about uh, the fact that this transition can help us cut heat-trapping emissions. Um, But as we're talking about right now, it can also improve the outcomes for our health. Both indoor and outdoor pollution will be reduced. Um, And they can make us more resilient to climate change that is happening whether or not we want it to. Uh, being able to be energy efficient and rely more on renewable energy sources and distributed energy sources as well can make it so we can really ride out the storm. And if our homes are efficient, we can be more efficient with the heat that we hold in our home during cold snaps. It can make us uh, more able to survive those storms, survive those extreme weather events. Renewable energy transitions can also create a lot of jobs for our workforce. So that's just a lot of benefits for our communities that uh, we really need to value as we think about the transition and what that means. Maria, do you know of any examples of uh, transition in in maybe localities or institutions that we can look to or point to to show people, see, this is what can be done that makes a difference, maybe economically or where you actually see some stats that show the improvements? Yeah, I mean, I have different examples, but some of the ones that are coming to mind is actually the Union of Concerned Scientists recently published a study. We looked at different models for clean energy futures, and we modeled this like net zero economy-wide future and looked outward to see what are some of the benefits of that. So looking at the health benefits, because that's what we're talking about, um, we found that by investing in a clean energy transition, um, one, it's feasible and cost-effective. And by 2050, it can save us more than $800 billion in public health costs alone. And this is just by reducing the amount of pollution from particulate matter, something David mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. um, in our economy. So. This is a, a you know data-heavy analytical study that we did, but it, it brought about these really incredible results that our benefits are far outweighing the cost of this energy transition. And a lot of states and cities are incorporating that into their policy. A lot of cities are uh, making it so that new builds in uh, different residential buildings or uh, business buildings are all electric. Um, so, you know, no more gas hookups. Um, And we also have the Inflation Reduction Act, which is providing a lot of benefits uh, to be able to retrofit 
our homes and businesses to become more energy efficient. So these are a lot of ways in which we're seeing these benefits be uh, not only understood through uh, analytics, but also realized through policy and to be able to make those opportunities more accessible and real. You know, in economics, we I think we have to sure. lean into that a lot more because it's usually economics that make people, give people the incentive to do something different, uh, for sure. Another thing I want to ask you, though, Maria, as it relates to the Union of Concerned Scientists, and it seems like this would be something in y'all's purview, and that is maybe health advisories. You know, as David was talking about earlier, when you, you have the summer storms, you have the floods and all of that. Have there been any attempts or any thoughts to, say, give health advisories for the summer, health advisories for these things? I know here in North Texas, they don't give health advisories, but they start talking about, you know, make sure you drink water and all of that stuff. But it seems like if we gave some health advisories per these extreme weather events and we did it in a consistent and high-profile way, that perhaps that might be able to make a dent with people where they are connecting and seeing the health impacts of these various environmental issues. And therefore, that might drive them then to take the environmental issue much more seriously. Absolutely. I mean, the issue of public health, it's in the name. It has to be public. It has to be accessible for everyone. So being able to have information into what is going on outside your door is really important. And, you know, we have health can be expanded into a lot of different areas. So we can think about extreme heat, extreme cold, and we can go on our phones and check out the forecast. But we really need to understand what the real implications of that extreme cold and extreme heat are, because our health is directly related to our environment. Um, And apart from just extreme temperatures, like you said, we have pollution, we have smog. Temperatures affect the way that those particles sit in the air. Sometimes they can sit more heavily and lower down so that we're breathing them in more. So being able to not only communicate some of those health advisories, but also be able to get in touch with people who really need help I'm talking about indeed well let me let me ask you this though for example one of the things that's going on now I saw it on the way is all this flooding in California and I saw a picture of a a fellow on the top of his car and so it seems like there too there should have been and they've been talking about this flooding coming for two or three days like health advisors on that to talk this is the time when it's coming or when it's here to talk about like you mentioned David Uh, what the health impacts are, and then what you should do so that people can begin to put the two together. Anyway, we're going to need to go to break, but we'll be right back on the other side uh, so that Maria Chavez with the Union of Concerned Scientists and David Turcotte with Lowell Healthy Homes can make us even smarter. We'll be right back. We want to give a shout-out now to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex Magazine, The Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all HEB stores, natural grocers, all central markets, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available free for download online at nadallas.com. Check them out. 
Our other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care, practicing dentistry for over 40 years with a holistic approach, non-mercury, looking at the whole body. Specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lindentalcare.com. Thank you. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio to our series this month on energy production and consumption. And today we are navigating the interconnected world of energy production, consumption, and our personal health. And we are back with Maria Chavez with the Union of Concerned Scientists with their climate and energy program and with David Turcott with Lowell Healthy Homes and the University of Massachusetts at Lowell. And again, we really appreciate both of you all. I want to go now to uh, back to David. David, can you talk to us, though, about how does home energy use impact climate change? What is that connection? (laughs) Well, <laughs> we know how climate change impacts the energy we have to use at home, but is, right, is right. what's the connection going the other side? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, if we're using natural gas or oil, mm-hmm. you know, for heating, then we're producing carbon dioxide emissions, and those emissions leading to uh, climate change, and uh, and which we've been talking about the impacts of various types of changes in the climate, from extreme weather to, you know, extreme heat and so forth. So, you know, when we cook our gas stoves, when we heat our home with natural gas or oil, when we um, run our lawnmowers, you know, and uh, using gasoline, you know, any anything like that that is powered uh, by, or, you know, sources of fossil fuel, you know, we're negatively impacting the environment, creating pollution and raising, you know, admissions and accelerating climate change and all the negative impacts that we've been talking about. Indeed. Yeah. So we need to go to electric lawnmowers and electric uh, weed eaters and electric, uh, what do you call those things that blow the leaves and the snow around and all of that. As you were talking, I'm envisioning kind of your your home and your plot of land and that it's just spewing stuff up <laughs> into the air <laughs> that's adding I mean, that's, to yeah. yeah that's the reality yeah. I mean, we don't necessarily see it that vividly but, <laughs> but you know what you what you know the picture you're painting you know is important to paint and, and have people you know think about it from that perspective and, and again there's limitations you know and challenges i mean you know, one of my colleagues who actually directs the climate change initiative at UMass Lowe, you know, she wanted to do some a very deep energy retrofit in her home, but it was a cost factor that she couldn't, you know, handle right at the moment. So to make these kind of changes, it's really important to, you know, for government, like the Inflation Reduction Act, and, you know, the more incentives we can offer people and the more barriers that we take down, and make it more affordable for people to do. I mean, many people would like to buy an electric automobile, but, you know, the price is very prohibitive for most people. Well, the price used to be prohibitive. They are now just about on par <laughs> uh, with everything else. And, and I think that's a part that people don't realize yet. 
Uh, I remember about 14 years ago when I first started into the green, healthy, and sustainable living field, it was very prohibitive. But everything I see now is that it's cost-effective and in many cases, lower lower price. But unfortunately, many are still trading on that 15 years ago. So we have to work harder there. Let me ask you this too, David, though. How can energy-efficient homes help reduce our reliance on fossil fuels and improve public health. Tell us about some of those efficiencies uh, that can yeah, make significant reductions. The more, you know, the more things we can do to reduce our energy consumption, that will reduce the impact because, you know, if we insulate our homes and have, you know, all the cracks sealed and we transition away from, you know, gas stoves to induction stove tops and or electric stoves, you know, and other types of devices, appliances that depend on fossil fuels, we're going to reduce pollution, we're going to reduce, you know, emissions, and hopefully start to reduce the impacts, you know, and the temperature increases that we've been seeing over the last uh, few decades in particular. But David, what are some uh, innovative or perhaps not so innovative ways or examples that home energy design and use can have a uh, a real positive impact on our health and the health of the environment. Some yeah. innovative well, ways focus, or some ways we haven't thought of even. Yeah, well, I'll focus on the gas stove <laughs> <laughs> you know, because that's a project I've been working on mm-hmm. recently. To, you know, to replace, some tenants obviously don't have the option of having a gas stove replaced with something else like an electric or a induction stove. But what could happen is that they could get um, induction countertops. You know, there's one burner countertops, there's two burner countertops. They could use those as an alternative to depending on their gas stove. And certainly anyone. Yeah, anyone wife, can do that, even a homeowner, yeah, right? My, my wife only wanted to cook with gas, natural gas stoves. She hated a traditional electric stove. But, you know, we did transition to an induction countertops. And she loves them now because in addition to having no pollution <laughs> and not breathing, you know, all the byproducts of carbon monoxide and nitrogen dioxide and so forth and particulates, it cooks much more efficiently and faster. So she's able to prepare meals and cook things, you know, much quicker now than she used to with a gas stove. You know, another thing if anyone could do is, you know, get an electric pot instead of boiling water on the stove. Just, you know, use an electric pot to uh, boil your water. These are, you know, very simple things that aren't that sophisticated, uh, but, you know, there are thing, easy things that people could do. And they are, to, and they, uh, there are some health benefits because I can see someone who has very, someone who has, may have very, very severe allergies, and it would be to their benefit to have, if they don't have an electric uh, uh, stove, to get this in, these in, induction uh, burners or these countertop induction uh, devices, right. and then they could eliminate that bit of air pollution from their, that, that, that air soup that's around them that could help their, their, right. their allergies, yeah. Absolutely. I want to go back to Maria. Maria, what do you think are some of the most important factors to consider when we're evaluating the, the health and environmental impacts of the different energy sources? Some of the ones that we really need to focus on are, one, who is being affected, and two, what are some of the cumulative impacts? So 
going back to our earlier conversation about these disproportionate impacts, I think we need to think about who has access to clean energy resources and who doesn't. Who is facing the most harm by being in proximity to fossil fuel sources uh, and who gets to reap the benefits of that energy without having to face, you know, a lot of the harm. So trying to address some of that inequity is really important in trying to understand what the right solutions are for us in our communities. How can ordinary people in their everyday lives impact that? Well, we all have a voice. We all can impact policy in our own ways. We can talk to the people who make our policies, who have some power and say, uh, who control where some of this uh, funding, uh, for example, from the federal government is going. If you want your state to be able to apply to some of that funding, you have to use your voice to do that. You also have to advocate, you know, through your community, through your, again, your legislators, your policymakers to try to understand how to bring benefits to you and your community. And so my last question for you, Maria, though, if you were able to help 30 percent of Americans across the board uh, immediately acquire renewable energy uh, source for their homes, how would you go about doing that? Just 30 percent of Americans, Uh, irrespective as to uh, income or anything like that. How would you go about doing that? I would make it affordable (laughs) and I would make you know, I mean, we talked about that already, but it's still cost prohibitive for a lot of people. So I would be able to uh, realize more incentives for people, not just through tax breaks, but through really immediate discounts, like right when they're buying, you know, their electric appliance, because they need those savings right now, not in a year. I would make it accessible. So be able to find the accurate and up-to-date information to make the right decisions, to be educated as a consumer to understand some of the health impacts and also health benefits of what that transition means. And David mentioned this, and it's close to my heart because I'm a renter. I would try to create better options and better incentives for renters. They make up a lot of the households in America and they need incentives too. I can't control whether my windows are drafty, Mm -hmm. whether I have a gas so, but I still want to realize some of those benefits. I want to live a healthier life, too. So I would try to bring more incentives, better solutions for people who are renters and also the folks that are providing, you know, those homes for, for renters and tenants. Indeed. Thank you for that. And, David, last question. Uh, how can ordinary people in their everyday lives actually help protect their health from some of our fossil fuel dependency in our homes. You know, it's happening. Not very many people are have transitioned away. What are some of the things that people perhaps can do to to protect their health as they live in this fossil fuel pollutant soup? Right. Well, as I mentioned earlier, certainly transition away from any um, fossil fuel type of cooking sources in the home would be a number one thing. But, this, you know, some of the other things we've talked about, you know, conservation, trying to reduce electric, you know, usage of electricity. Because even if you're using, you know, you have mostly electricity in your home, 100% of the um, generating fuels for that energy may not be from clean energy sources. There may be a mixture of clean energy and fossil fuel um, sources. So anything you can do to reduce energy usage will save you money, too. Certainly, um, you know, if you have... The ability to have solar panels put on your home, you can generate your own energy and reduce dependency 
you know, and save money in the process. Thank you so much. And, and we, we've come to the end of our show, and it always happens that way. But I really appreciate you all helping us. You've made us smarter in terms of helping to realize some of this significant impact that just the energy that we use in our homes every day is affecting the environment, but more so even than before then, it's affecting our own health. So thank you. You've made us smarter. We've been today with Maria Chavez, an energy analyst for the Union of Concerned Scientists in their Climate and Energy Program, and with David Turcott, um, director of the Lowell Healthy Homes Program uh, and the New England Healthy Homes Training Center, uh, as well as with the Climate Change Initiative at the University of Massachusetts in Lowell. Thank you. And thank you, listeners, for listening in today to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. The conversation starts here, but our goal is for it to continue in your home, in your social circles, your workplaces, at the water cooler, and even in the grocery checkout line, so that we can all work together to realize that healthy living is simply not possible without a healthy planet. Our culture is the result of a trillion tiny acts taken by billions of people every day like yourselves. And each of those tiny acts can seem insignificant, but all of them add up one way or the other to the change that we each live through. This is your host, Bernice Butler. Thank you for listening in today and join us again next week for more on energy production and consumption. And listen to any of our past shows on podcast wherever you get yours. Thank you.